Welcome to another episode of Wish I Knew, a podcast where I speak with people about their careers, focusing on their success, advice, mentoring, and listening to their stories. I'm your host, Gary Nowak, and you are going to enjoy my conversation with Matt Wiggler, a gifted young man who is a jazz and blues artist, speaker, and founder and CEO of a pair of companies. A bit about Matt's background, went to the Manhattan School of Music, discovered the University of Miami for a BA in music and an MBA in finance. We talk about that. Jazz and blues artist performing since 2007, founder and CEO of MHW Live Music. It's a leading provider of entertainment for hotel outlets in the U.S. And the Wiggler Group, both based out of Miami. The Wiggler Group helps companies achieve consistent flow of qualified sales meetings. Some highlights from our discussion. Good as a jazz pianist, or good for a 13-year-old, a question raised by a mentor early on. Going to a rock and roll camp at eight years old, how good would that be? Two great mentors with two great names, family influence, music, and being an entrepreneur are in his genes, education in music and discovering Miami, 2016 started his first company, picking a lifestyle and working towards it, trading time for money, I like this concept and I like the way you phrased it. I asked if it's a bigger adrenaline rush playing music in front of a crowd or conducting a successful business meeting. Bringing John Senna into the conversation about the power of listening, loving Miami and spreading his roots, being strong and courageous through the pandemic and doubling down on his gut instinct, looking into the future, working as a consultant and finding an opportunity building up an annuity of revenue. Interesting discussion around accrual accounting and how you must have that to be a successful entrepreneur. Shooting straight and being honest, we talk about risk versus pressure. I found Matt to be a very ethical and honest young man. Unimpactful, impactful comments. Being proud of yourself. Okay, enough summary for me. Let me get out of your way so you can sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Matt Wiggler. Matt, thanks for being on the podcast. Really great to see you. Looking forward to this one. Me too. Thanks for having me, Gary. Okay. I always start with, what was your very first job? I remember my very first gig. Where I, I started playing music professionally when I was a really young. I was in high school. I, even Maybe even before that, I was 13 years old and there was a restaurant in Ellicott City, Maryland, which is where I grew up. And I don't even, I don't remember how it came about that they found me or I found them, but they hired me to play at a uh, Mardi Gras party at the restaurant. And that was my first ever paid job. What did you play? Playing jazz piano. I assume you were good. <laughs> I don't know if they should have been paying me or not. There was some novelty about having the young kid playing at the event, but I did I, I did start playing professionally and recording when I was when I was really young. So that, that was the first. So you were good for a 13-year-old? I was good for a 13-year-old. And I'll tell you, I'm jumping ahead to something that we'll probably talk about. But good for a 13-year-old was a comment. I had a really, really important and influential piano teacher turned mentor turned really close family friend named Deanna Bogart, who... I remember right around that same time, maybe a year prior to that, when I started taking piano lessons with her, she said, would you mind if I 
am really honest with you. Do you want me to treat you like a kid or you want me to treat you like an adult? And I said, no, be, be honest with me. And she said, do you want to be good for your age or do you just want to be good? And I said, I want to be good. I want to be good for any age. So that was, that was right around that time that I started really taking it seriously to, to become a professional musician. Don't you love that comment? Do you want me to be honest with you? Or do you just want me to just scratch the surface and tell you what you want to hear and just flip through a thing? So exactly. curious how that, did you infuse any of that in your career? Oh yeah, I think that is, that is probably the type of thing that is important across the board. For example, one of the things that we do at my company at Wiggler Group is we have a client come to us and they say, help. basically what we do is the clients outsource their business development representatives would be the sort of most common title that's out in the world. Basically, their appointment setting. We, we have reps that work for me that are assigned to our clients and they make phone calls and they send follow-up emails and all that with the goal of booking an initial sales presentation for the clients. But one of the things that we have to be very honest with them is, do you really know who your ideal customer is? And you'd be surprised how many clients, whether it's a business owner, whether it's a vice president of sales and marketing or those types. Yes, they know, you know, they may have a general sense, but we have to really push them sometimes harder than they want to be pushed to dial it in to a place where we can do a good job. But yeah, I think that kind of principle is true across the board. And I had, when I was learning how to be going back to this story of my first job, and then I had, like I was saying, a great mentor, Deanna Bogart, who told me that. And then I had Another mentor, a few years later, same thing. One of the, one of the very most well-known jazz pianists that's out there today named Cyrus Chestnut, who is from Baltimore like me and was my subsequent piano teacher, mentor to, to Deanna Bogart. But same thing with him. I remember he would come over to my house for piano lessons and I'm sitting at the piano and he would grab a chair from the dining room and he would sit almost like on the other side of the room with his back facing me. And I thought, what was he doing? And he would say, okay, play me that thing that you're working on. And I would play it. And he would just raise his hand like this with his back to me. And he would say, I heard that. Do it again. He would say, no, put that C sharp, not C natural. And it, it, I just thought, wow, this is amazing. He just, how is he doing that from not even looking at it? So anyway, but the point was that that experience was sort of like, look, I'm not going to give you a compliment unless it's really, really good. It doesn't matter that you're young or that you're paying me for a lesson or whatever. It has to be up to a really high caliber. And so I like that uh, across the board. So you mentioned the Wiggler Group. Do you want to talk about that? Is that where you want to start? Oh, whatever, uh, whatever you want to do here. Because you mentioned, you said they outsource to you and you mentioned speaker. Is it for... What's the, what's the purpose of the group? Because you mentioned finding the niche, which is important, and companies often don't know what their niche is. So I think you raise that as a concern with yep. people. But what service, who are you linking up? So you're linking up speakers to... Oh, okay. No, so our target market is, or you know, sort of the customers that we're working with are marketing agencies, small, medium. We could work for a large one too, but generally we're seeing... A marketing agency that may have 10 or 20 or 30 employees, typically what we see out there is that the owner or the owners of the agency are still very involved in running the business. The irony about it is that although they do marketing for a living on behalf of their clients, they generally 
from what I see when I talk to people, don't have a um, really effective sales process for themselves to generate new business opportunities. Maybe they rely on you know referrals or relationships because they've been in the industry for 20 or 30 years. Obviously, there's a desire to have a sales process for yourself that will have you sleep better at night because what happens if you lose a big client and then all of a sudden you don't have a pipeline? Okay, so that's the problem. And then what we do is we say, rather than going out and figuring it out the hard way, because the other thing is, most of the people we talk to don't feel comfortable just going out and hiring a business development person because maybe they don't know what to tell them. They don't know how to set up the foundation for success. They don't know how to track the progress, things like that. So we say, look, we'll give you the whole thing fractionally, basically. And we'll say, okay, you'll get me or my business partner to give you, help you define your overall strategy, your ideal client, what we're going to say. There's a big distinction I see between what you say when it's marketing that may go out there on a billboard or something, which is all, you know, there's a big difference between that and a sales message, which is I'm typing it on my iPhone and sending it to another person one-to-one. And so we help them define all that. And then we do research. We have a lot of expensive research tools to help them find the actual people that we need to be reaching. It could be a chief marketing officer or vice president of marketing, whatever that looks like. And then we have our team of, we call them partnerships managers, but call them business development reps or that sort of thing that technically work for us, but they're assigned, they're on assignment to the clients, making calls and booking appointments. So that's basically the service. People like it because when you compare what it would cost to set that whole thing up internally compared to plugging into our process, it's really a much more attractive value and less risky to do it with us. So you help marketing companies find companies to market for. Exactly. Okay. All right. Very helpful. And how would you describe your career overall? Are you an entrepreneur? Entrepreneur? Yeah, basically. And you see, I'm very young, right? So, so far, I started playing music professionally at a very young age. I went to Manhattan School of Music for one year. Then I came down to Miami, where I still am, and got a music degree and a Spanish degree, my undergraduate. And I went to business school at University of Miami, too. So I got an MBA at University of Miami five years ago. Why Miami? Why did you go to uh, University of So Miami has the original reason that I came down here was that the University of Miami Frost School of Music is one of the top music schools. So I had auditioned at Berkeley and Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music and down here at the Frost School of Music before my first year of college and initially chose Manhattan School of Music. A lot of jazz musicians have the dream of, you know, I want to go to New York and experience there's a very special music scene up there. And then, I don't know, along the way, I, some, somehow in that first year, I started thinking maybe being 100% focused on music at a conservatory is not, I want something more than that. Maybe I want to study some other areas or I don't know, I just want to, and it was really cold up there too. And I, I like the idea of coming down here. I remember how beautiful it was down here at Miami. That shouldn't be a reason. Come on. Weather drives most decisions. Sometimes it's a factor. You talk to people that get older, they want nice weather. There's a factor. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, so I remember, anyway, I came down here. I already had met the, the people at the music school because I had auditioned and they had made me a nice offer to come 
as a freshman. The point was, I came down here, fell in love with Miami. Now I'm totally permanent. Hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, exactly. It took about two or three years, but the more I started to get to know the place, I said, wow, this is great. Because the other thing that I really enjoyed was I learned how to speak Spanish. And a huge percentage of the population, the majority of the population here is Spanish speaking. And it's just a very, it's a very fun environment here in Miami. Went to business school. I started my first company five years ago in 2016 called MHW Live Music. What we do at MHW Live Music is we provide the live music programming for luxury hotels across the whole country. So what that means is you go into a nice hotel. If you see a guy playing guitar in the lobby or a DJ at the restaurant or somebody out at the pool, that kind of ongoing entertainment at a hotel, we have a nationwide directory of musicians that we've auditioned and we uh, send them out to our hotel clients. So as it stands today, we have about 60 hotels that we provide that service for. So that's MHW Live Music. Let me take you back. What got you into music at such a young age? What was the inspiration there? Oh, I had the first thing that got me excited about it was my parents sent me to this music camp when I was like eight years old in Baltimore. They had gotten me, my dad played, has, has played music for his whole life. He, he was, he never was a professional musician, but he was a very high level non-professional musician. He played in, he played trumpet in bands in college and he played piano. And so he was that side of the family, especially we have a lot of musicians around the family. And so, I don't know, we had a piano at our house and I don't know. So they sent me to this camp, but the cool thing about the camp was it was a rock and roll camp. So it was like, get all the kids together, put them in a rock and roll band with keyboards and guitar and bass and singer and drummer and everything. And there was a keyboard piano teacher at the camp. Chuck Field was his name. And he became like my first really, wow, just got me so excited about playing the piano in, in a non-classical way, because I, 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 I don't know, I, I don't remember being excited about classical piano or reading music or things like that. But I remember I went to this rock and roll camp and he said, I'm going to teach you how to play the blues. And I said, wow, I just loved it immediately. And so that's at eight years old. Right. OK, so you, the DNA of your family, there's DNA of music being played on your father's side. Yeah, my dad. Yeah, my grandfather. We have. I can't remember exactly what the relationship is. I think I'm pretty sure it's my dad's uncle who just passed away at 100 years old, I think this year, who was, don't quote me on this, but something like the longest serving member of one of the symphony orchestra. He was in the symphony orchestra for 40 years or something. I got to go back and get the details, but yeah, it's in the family. So that eight, 13 years old, you get this, you play Mardi Gras, 13 years, you're making money. Then you have this, you, you continue to play and it feels like you've got Juilliard, you want to be in New York. And then something tells you to go down to Miami and you, your lead foot was music. Right. But then you start, then you started quickly moving over to a business mind and a business sense. What was that transition for you? Did you always knew you had a good business sense? Oh, I don't know. I guess that's an interesting question. I don't know when I realized that I wanted to start a business, but I know when I came down here to Miami, I was playing gigs at these type of 
venues, these types of hotels that are now my clients. And I saw how, frankly, it was, it's usually pretty disorganized. There's not, I just noticed, wow, there is no company that specializes in providing this service of making an entertainment program for a hotel, making it a really good experience for the manager. Because I could tell, wow, the managers of these hotels are running around fielding phone calls from independent musicians who may not have insurance. They may not know how to properly send an invoice. And these are big companies. This is Marriott International, big hotels. And so I said, I think, let's see if we can solve that problem. So it was a combination of the um, seeing as a musician what was going on and thinking, can this be a business? But that's the interesting transition for me is being a musician, seeing the need. Because how many musicians before you have gone through this? Thousands. Oh, everyone. Every single one of them, right? Yet you saw it and being a talented musician, say, you know what? I see a business uh, opportunity here. And that's a great entrepreneur. So that feels very entrepreneurial to me. And it's a different side of the brain. So you got both sides of the brains working. I, don't, I think I'm, I guess I'm like my dad. He, he's a business guy and a, he's an entrepreneur and he's started companies and been pretty successful. So I, I don't know. I guess I just, that's a way of, even he never he never came to me and said you should start your own businesses or or you should go to business school. It was I don't know, but but obviously my I really knock on wood. I, my my parents are extremely supportive. I don't know, but I think something about that. Seeing I remember when he started his first company when I was a really little kid. I remember seeing what that was like, and that's where it, that's probably where it comes from. So you're following in the footsteps. So did, have you ever thought you could be a full-time musician and make a living off of that? Did that ever come to your mind? I think when I first went to college and I guess didn't really know how expensive things were in the world and didn't really have a sense of what it would take to... And look, for the record, it just depends on the kind of lifestyle you want to have, right? Yes, I could make a living working as a musician if you told me I, that you have to do that, I could do it today. I don't think it, it would not be that easy to put together enough income for where I want to go for my personal vision. But that's just my personal opinion. Some other people may say, hey, I want to play four gigs a week. That's how much money I'm going to make. And I, that, that's what I want to do. That's just a personal choice. I think it's very, it's very difficult as a working musician to make big money. You have to be a star if you want to make big money. And my feeling is even if you figure out how to be the star of the show and you get highly paid for your performances, you're still trading your time in exchange for money. You, you, can't, let, you can't lever yourself up unless you get into some kind of business. Right. We're getting very technical. So it's a lifestyle you want. You want a certain lifestyle that, hey, a full-time musician, unless I'm super great, it's not the lifestyle that you want it to lead. So you're, you're looking, you're almost uh, reverse engineering. Yes, lifestyle. But I'll say something even stronger, which is I love running these businesses. I have so much fun, so much fun running the businesses, bringing people onto the team. We, get, we set our goals together. We celebrate when we get a new client or when something good happens. But the whole thing about that whole leadership thing or putting the people together and going out and trying to accomplish something together is so much fun. And music is fun too. I see it as two distinct things and I like both. So which is more of an adrenaline rush? You being on stage, 
finishing something to get this big round of applause or getting a new client or celebrating the success of a client? Oh, I don't know. I, they're, they're similar. I, I think that's a good, that's a, that's a good point. They're, they're pretty similar. Putting on a great concert. And this is the other thing is what running these businesses is allowing me to do, which is really great, is I'm, I, I'm only playing the music performances that I think are going to be really enjoyable. That doesn't mean that they necessarily pay a lot of money, but a performance where there's going to be a really appreciative audience. Great. Love that. Like you said, your performance, there's a hundred people there and everybody really enjoyed it. That is very satisfying. Or there's phenomenal people that are in the band and we're going to have such a great time playing music together, regardless of how much we're getting paid. Fine. Whereas the mentality before was anytime they call me, I'll take it because otherwise you don't make any money. But I think the rush is, yeah, the rush is pretty similar. I like both of both of those both of those things. So what I'm hearing is if I have a nice coaching session with somebody and I think I do a good job, that's the same adrenaline rush I would get by being on stage playing an instrument. Is that what I'm hearing? For me, I think it's similar. (laughs) I think it's similar. When you show up, I'll give you an example. When you show up at a meeting, this is a prospective client. It's a sales meeting. To me, the sales meeting is kind of like you're putting on a performance, right? And just just like any good performance, and this is interesting, any really artistically good performance is completely authentic, right? Just like any good, any really good sales presentation with integrity, I'm just telling you the truth about what we're going to do. And then you decide whether you need it and whether what it costs makes sense for you. I actually see that as being exactly the same. I give this performance and similar to it's very, this is an interesting sort of analogy, right? You get to me, a good performance is you're on stage and the audience is there and you can tell whether you got them or not. A good performer, a good to me can tell, like when I play, are they with me? You can just read the, even without looking, you can just feel the energy, whether they're following where the performance is going or whether the audience is distracted or they're bored or some people start talking to each other because they, they just, they lost their focus on the performance. Same thing on a sales call or on a, any kind of interaction. Like, is everybody on the same page? Are we all following the same journey together? And I think that's, that's actually a very strong analogy between the two, between the two things. So you read the room, right? Whether you're a musician or when I listened to a podcast with John Senna, the, the professional wrestler, he, what he said struck me because I believe listening is probably one of our best traits that you can have. So he's talking to somebody about, cause it's scripted wrestling's all scripted. So they right. will rehearse and practice things and try to anticipate what the audience is going to like or not like. But he said, as soon as you walk in that ring in front of those audience, you have to be attuned to their reaction. So what you scripted out earlier may not be the point where you stop and celebrate or do something. So he just said, in as much as you prepare, you have to listen and you have to be present with the audience to see where they're going. It sounds like the same thing with either for you music or your business career. Totally. Yeah, totally. You touched on you touched on something that I, I wanted to tie back to Diana Bogart was the authenticity. And do you want me to treat you or Cyrus Chestnut, which is one of the best names I've ever seen? Right? He might he should be a musician with a name like that. 
but it's, do you, do you want to be a good 13 year old or do you want to be good? And with Diana's, do you want to be, do you want me to be honest with you? Or do you want me to just, no, just hit me, hit me with both barrels. So it sounds like you've pulled that into your business career as well with being authentic with whoever your prospective client will be. Yeah, definitely. So I pulled you off of MHW, which you align artists with hotels for their uh, musical needs, whether it's by the pool, in the bar, whatever. You got 60 hotels that you're working with and you vet everybody. So your service that you provide is you, you know, run performances, you might invoice them, you have all the insurance. So you're kind of like the face to them, I would think. Yeah, exactly. It's we're a hundred the really unique thing is we're a hundred percent on the hotel side. We're in the hotel business. So we provide a service for the hotel managers that are our clients to make one of their one of the hats that they wear, which is booking an entertainment program, which is not in their job description, by the way. We just say, don't well, here's the budget, we'll send you the invoice. Everybody will show up on time. We will have auditioned the musicians and made sure that they understand the procedures that they need to follow, dress code or things like that. And that's a very positive experience. The musicians like it too, because they're dealing with the people, the managers that I have that recruit and book the entertainment, they are musicians themselves. So it's a, I think there's a higher level of understanding. You're talking to a peer, you're talking to somebody else who's also a musician. And so I think that relationship is also really good on the musician side. They get it. Educational wise, you went down to Miami for music. Yep. Did you stay in that field? I got, I ended up getting a a double major uh, music and Spanish. Okay. And then was there an MBA involved in this at all? And then I went back and then I did an MBA following that also at University of Miami. Okay. So you went down there for music, got Spanish because what's the best part of Miami? Oh, I don't know. Geographically or things to do? Whatever. You know, it could be the food or the people or the language or the music scene or whatever. I I just love the whole thing. If you like this sort of festive Latin American sort of atmosphere. My mom, who I am always trying to convince to move down here, maybe, maybe one day. She doesn't speak Spanish. And understandably, there's a lot of places that you go. And I'm not talking about places that are a Cuban restaurant or something that's like that. I'm talking about you walk into Walmart or Target or the grocery store and you ask someone, where are the onions? And it's very helpful if you can ask that in Spanish, which is, I think is great. It's funny because my mom gets, she gets worried that she won't be able to find her way around. But no, I just think it's great here. This is obviously for my, for MHW Live Music, this is one of the top hotel markets in the world. So there's a good alignment with that. I'm involved with the, you know, hotel association here in Miami, good community there. I'm involved with the the University of Miami community, both in the music school and the business school. Those are great. There's just a nice community that I found here that is really, I, I wouldn't leave. And then I, I like to play tennis. We play every day of the year, as long as it doesn't rain. And a lot of cool neighborhoods, whether it's Miami Beach, whether it's where I, I live in kind of the central business area. I live in Brickle and I don't know, there's just a lot of cool stuff to do here. So you found the place where you're going to live for the rest of your life. It sounds like. You never know. I never said, I would never promise anything for the rest of my life, but I, I wouldn't see uh, permanently going away and not trying to uh, 
keep an apartment here or something like that in the future. Some sort of foothold. I can see a, a statue of you at some point in your life where you've transformed the Miami market with the music scene and everything else. Because you got the business side, the music side. <laughs> we'll see. It's cool because Miami's also, right now at this moment, is there's a lot of talk about businesses moving here, technology investment coming here. It's one of the hot places. And look, I hope they don't jack up our prices too much because I maybe I'm in the market for buying a, a house in the next couple of years. But the point is, it's good. It's good because the impression I get is that more people are realizing what I realized a few years ago, which is, wow, this is a great place and fun place to live, great community, all kinds of great stuff to do, great airport. There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons. So I'm very happy. So one of the tie back, you mentioned mentoring with music early on. Have there been any business mentors in your life that have influenced you or you look up to? So starting with my dad, very much, very much. And I talk to him all the time and we're, I convinced, he moved down here a few years ago. So we see each other all the time, which is great. And, and then I would say, so I went to business school. I became very friendly with a number of the professors at the business school. I became very friendly with the with the dean of Miami Herbert Business School, John Quelch, who has been a great mentor. And let me think who else. I have a great relationship, like I said, with the Miami. It's called the Greater Miami and Beaches Hotel Association. The lady that runs that, her name is Wendy. Great relationship with her. And the other thing that I'm involved in a sort of mentorship is I'm a member of this group uh, called the Alternative Board. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It's a business owners, like a mastermind sort of group. And I'm by far the youngest, as I always am in most situations, which is good. And so we get together once a month and there's a coach facilitator who's a, who, who runs it. And then different Miami business owners in all different fields. And we get together and coach each other. And it's cool because I can throw out things like, hey, I'm thinking about hiring a person, structuring it this way. What do you think? And having enough people that have been there before that can tell me, yes, that sounds like it makes sense or no, that that's crazy. So if you stop right now in your career and look back, what are you thinking? Oh, I would say I'm very happy. I definitely think I'm on a very, really exciting track. And the other thing that I'm that I always am trying to do, and I try to do this with both of my both the, our clients and also with my team for each business, is okay. Well, here's where we started. I'll give this MHW Live Music as a good example. Like we started five years ago. Okay, we had zero hotels. Now we have sixty. Now there's a whole story in there because 18 months ago we had zero because of the pandemic. So we had grown. To, just to give you a sense that I can go back into this, but we had about 10 or 12 hotels prior to the pandemic. We went to zero. And then we made a decision. This is along the lines of vi long-term vision, long-term thinking, how, where are we going to be in five or 10 or even 20 years? And I said, because a lot of people said, are you going to pivot? Are you going to change? Are you going to do something else? And I said, no way. Our, the foundation, the principle about why our business exists will absolutely continue to be there after the pandemic. So I said, let's keep selling. We took every extra dollar and continue to pay our, we have a great salesperson. We continue to have her work full-time for the whole pandemic. 
Now we have 60 hotels 18 months later. So anyway, so that's there's a long-term vision thing about that. But I would say, yeah, it's a very exciting track. And I'm thinking, okay, what was I doing five years ago? Not much. Going to school. Here we are today, really doing not so, not so bad, but pretty exciting. And then I, five years from now, I can't imagine. And 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, I really can't imagine. Because I think these things tend to have an exponential nature to them. It's not necessarily a linear curve. So you say five, 10, 20 years, you can't imagine. But if you had to imagine, what would be what would success look like for you? I would say in terms of where I think the businesses will be in, in 10 years, I don't, I'm going to have to save this. And then kind of, well, we should get back together 10 years from now and put, <laughs> put them side by side. That's the beauty of this, right? The podcast. It's, we're going to memorialize it. Yeah. I, I think that for live music, look, we my hope is that we're going to capture a really tremendous percentage of this little market that we've defined. I'd like to see us in 10 years. Right now we have 60. I'd like to see us with a thousand hotels. To give you a sense, the total market is not that much bigger than the, maybe the total market's 2,000 hotels or something like that are applicable to us because not every hotel applies to what we do. There's a particular sort of flavor and size and all of that. But wow, I'd like to see us something like that. And I think it's very possible. It's probably very likely that we could have a thousand hotels 10 years from now, because we're, people are getting to know us in this field. There's not that many people, as you know, it's like in these little markets, people tend to know each other. They move around from different companies. We're getting to the point now that there's some corporate level people that are starting to take a look at us. Maybe we can do something nationwide across a whole hotel company. So that's why I see there's, I think we're getting close to the point of it being exponential because right now we've been adding one by one by one. One, one day we have a few opportunities in the hopper, even right now, one day somebody will say, no, here's a hundred. That's where I think it'll be exponential. Okay. So you're seeing growing from 60 to thousands. Uh, and then I think for the other company, I don't know how that company actually has a larger potential market because our service is not just applicable to marketing agencies. That's just where we're focusing today. So what made you start that company? Cause you have this, this MHW live music, right? That's, that's up and running. And then what made you, or what did you see to start this other group? So when all of the hotels shut down all at the same time on March 15th, last year, I, I sat around for a couple of months and I, you know, thinking about what am I going to do? And, at some point, I don't know why this spark happened, but there, sometime it was May or June of 2020 last year. And I said, I'm not just going to sit around and wait a year or maybe two years for these hotels to reopen. And that, it turns out, has been, it's been 18, 18 months was the correct prediction because here we are 18 months later. And so I said, I got to do something. I went out and I looked for, I had, I don't know how I came up with this idea, but I thought, we developed a nice business-to-business -business sales process for live music, which we've been talking about. I wonder if I could take what I learned setting that up, because it was a few years of making mistakes and finding the right people and the right process. And I said, oh, I, now I have something that's really pretty good. wonder if I could offer that to other companies, but I don't want to be a full-time employee. Maybe somebody will let me do that as a consultant. So I went out and I found these guys who they had a software product and they were trying to 
get their software product into the hotel market. So I said, okay, cool. So I reached out to them and they hired me as a consultant and we worked on was this going to be feasible to get in the hotel market? We actually got it into a few hotels, whatever. But that was where I said, wow, I wonder if I could replicate that, take that business to business kind of niche market sales process, spin it out into its own service. And now a year and a half later, what we've come up with is we like working with these marketing agencies doing just that. So that's the history. So you mentioned something I'm always curious about with entrepreneurs of how do you get your inspiration? Because you said you're sitting around, you're thinking, and this idea idea just came to me. You're like, I don't know how. It's Do you brainstorm with other people? Do you sit there? Do you get influence from reading? Do you watch you know, the news? Do you read articles? We mentioned the Wall Street Journal earlier. Is it something you're reading there that, that clicks your memory over or inspiration? I don't even know if I have a clear answer for myself about this. Yeah, I do. Like we were saying before, I, I do get the newspaper delivered print every day, which is very unusual. And I like to sit there like you, right? I like to sit there and drink my coffee. And, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I have done structured brainstorming for business ideas with some of my, some of the, some of my friends from business school. I have a, a few, a few guys that we have done this periodically because where I was thinking maybe we'll, maybe we'll start another one on earth. but I don't know these two didn't come from structured planning or structured brainstorming I think they just came from seeing something like I said I saw something out there for the live music from direct experience and to be clear the definitions of exactly who our ideal customer is and exactly what we do for them did not come immediately at the beginning. That came from actually selling the service to real customers and maybe making some mistakes along the way and learning about what do they want, what do they not want, what do we say so that we have alignment so they understand what we do. That's challenging too. Like I have this, because you sometimes you describe something and then people will go off on their own and make their own interpretation. And you have to reel it back in and say, wait a minute. Okay, now let me reverse engineer. What did I say such that they went off and created that incorrect interpretation? And then I got to edit, change what I say to create the alignment. And that's a, to me, is a process of trial and error. And then for the Wiggly Group business, I don't know. I think that was more just of a, I don't know, necessity. I was just looking to find something to do during the pandemic shutdown. And the most obvious or the what I thought would be the path of least resistance to have somebody pay me as a consultant during that time was something in the realm of I've learned something about how to do B2B sales. That tends to be a relatively, I don't know, to me is a relatively easier gig to get than I don't know, some kind of operations management or something. Because you can just say, look, I've done it before. I'll do it for you. If I don't bring you the value in a certain amount of time, it's understood that you're going to let me go. So you don't have that much risk, especially if you bring me on as a consultant. And so that was how that started. And then I started to think, wow, there's really something here. Because the more people I talk to, the more I realized that practically everybody needs this. Why did you just stay as a consultant? Why the need to create your own group? Oh, I, I just have the, this, I think I got from my dad, which is I don't 
want to trade my time for money. I want to have a real company, which is a, which is a, an asset. Which for both companies, eventually we're going to hire a president that's not me. And because uh, I like starting them, I like putting the people together, but I don't want to work in the company for the next thirty years as a worker. I, I like the I like the leadership thing, but it's even more satisfying to me when somebody that I brought in, it's very satisfying. Somebody I brought in assumes leadership of a, a group of people or a project or whatever, and it's going well, and I hear good feedback. That is a really satisfying, even more than if the feedback were about me running it myself. What's your risk tolerance level? Do you have a high tolerance for risk? What kind of risk? You start your own company, you start hiring people. Now it's, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on you. Like I got to sell and keep these people employed. And you had mentioned, I think at MHW Live, you said, hey, we're going to keep the salesperson on full time. That's risky. Whereas I'm very risk averse. I don't like risk at all. How, okay, let me think about how I describe this. So I'm very risk averse about certain things, right? It's very important to me that we follow the rules. We're honest. We're a small business, but if you look at our accounting statement, it's wow. You won't believe how perfect I, I, there's certain things that are very important to me that we do them by the book and we do things the right way. But in terms of, okay, I think you'll appreciate this, right? As a small business, people that are going to go out there and start a small business, in my view, this is maybe you might find this a funny response to this risk aversion question, but you got to have really good accrual accounting even if you're small, in my opinion, because if not, and you're working in like my, both of my companies are B2B, we have receivables, people take 30 days to pay us, whatever. You may not know whether the heck you're making money or losing money. And then you're taking a lot of risk. If you don't, if you can't tell what's happening, I don't see it as being that risky because I know exactly what's happening. And I really make sure that we're always above our break-even point. There is pressure, like you said, we do have to sell enough to stay above our break-even point and retain enough clients. But I tell people before we hire them, these are relatively new companies. This is not the same as going to work for Coca-Cola or something. And I have to just, we, we lay out the expectation before they start. We're going to do the absolute best we can. And if something happens, we're just going to shoot straight. We're just going to be honest with you. And we and when we have had to let people go, they're not upset because we said we just said in the beginning, this is what's going to happen. And in the during for the pandemic, for example, look, we we had to let some people go, and obviously in the pandemic, people understood because that was a across the board sort of issue. But I don't know that type of risk or pressure, if you will, because I'm not even sure if I consider that to be risk. It's more pressure. Doesn't bother me that much as long as the foundation the expectations, the, the rules of the game are set up correctly. Well, what I heard was you're very ethical. You're very transparent in communication when you hire somebody. You don't lie to people, say, hey, here, here's what it is. We're a new company. And then from the accounting side, you're ethical on your accounting. Now, for those listeners that want to listen to my, I'm a CPA by background, so I do have a podcast on accrual accounting, so you guys can tune into that. I, I don't. Don't go look for it. But yeah, accrual <laughs> accounting is getting- But you should. <laughs> 
<laughs> please, if I put enough people to sleep with this one, is yeah, you know, right. I have insomnia. I, I, Gary, I put your podcast on because it just sends me over with uh, accountant sheep, just doesn't do it. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. It's not risky when you're honest with people and you're transparent with people and you know your numbers, you, you're not lying to yourself, you're not cooking the books. And right, and I think a lot of people look, some people may be intentionally lying to themselves, or some people. If you didn't go, if you didn't go to get an MBA or you didn't study accounting in any capacity, you just, it's just, it's in the blind spot. You just don't know. But I think it's, I don't, you've seen a lot. I haven't seen behind the curtain at any of, at any other companies, but my impression is that a lot of smaller businesses are, maybe they don't, maybe they're not putting the importance that they should, you know, knowing their numbers at the level that they can really feel comfortable. If you know your numbers, as long as you're not losing money, then you don't have to be that, the stress doesn't have to be that high. And so my point is, I'm happy, I pay, even though we're small, I pay my accountant to work a lot of hours every week to, to, so I know what I'm, so I know what I'm looking at. Exactly. What's the best advice you've received thus far? Oh, wow. It's like that piano story I told you. Do you want to be good for your age, you want to be really good. And advice, man, I don't know. I, it's hard to narrow it down to one. I remember one time. So that, by the way, was a, was sometimes somebody says something to you. They probably don't mean it to be impactful. It's just like, hey, I, I made this comment and whatever. But there's certain things that are like, wow, they really, you never forget. And they alter your course about the way that you approach the things and things like that. And uh, I don't know. I remember one. This is... If, if my dad listens to this, he'll appreciate this because he, I, I promise you, he does not remember this. This was just an in-passing comment. I don't know. How, uh, to make your dad listen to this. You can't expect him to download the podcast. You got to send well, it to him. Well, so. I don't know. He, he, he's, he's, he, when I post him on LinkedIn, he checks him out. But what, I, I don't remember how many years ago. One time he told me, and he's not nor, he doesn't normally say things like this either. He's normally very, I don't know, what's the word? He's not, he's not like a football coach. He, he's not like uh, like a hard charging kind of person. He's a very, very kind of calm personality. But one time I was worried about something when I was starting this first business. And he said, he said something to the effect of, are you sure that you're cut out for doing this, for starting your own companies? And he said, if you're going to be starting your own companies, you ha- this is what it's going to take. You got to do we got to just do what it takes. And I said, wow, and especially because he doesn't normally talk like that. And I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it done. Persistence. And what, and what I mean is it would have been so easy to give up in the pandemic. But what it took was to double down and keep pushing it. Things like that. And, and I, I just think people give up too fast, too easily, and don't necessarily have the long-term vision of it's the same thing with our clients. I say, look, what it's going to take for you to have an amazing pipeline of new clients is we're going to have to work this for years. It's not going to happen in two or three months. So, you know, so th- things like that. So I, that's the best answer I could come up with on the spot. What are you most proud of? Oh, in the business or generally? You choose. I don't know. I'm really proud of, well, I'll give you one example. So for MHW Live Music. Now, here's another person that has to listen to this. MHW Live Music, right after I got our first client, like a month after or something like that, I brought on my my business partner, somebody that I had known uh, that I've been very friendly with in college. 
his name is Lowell Ringle. And so he, now he's our chief operating officer. And some number of weeks or months ago, I had this thought, we were we have these team meetings once a week where everybody gets together. And he was leading the meeting and I'm just sitting, I'm observing, I'm sitting there. And I just thought, wow, this is what we talked about before, the engendering the leadership in someone else. And the way that he has run with it and become a totally amazing leader of our company. Wow, I'm so, I was so proud of that. I thought that was amazing. And it's not because I taught him how to do it. It's just because I said, look, here's what we're doing. And we're going to do it together. And I don't know, I, I from the very beginning, I just said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to micromanage or whatever. I, I want you to take on the position of really leading. And I don't know, I just thought that was amazing to to see that. And it's something that just to see someone where we started, we knew not, neither one of us, I didn't know anything either. We didn't know anything. We were fumbling around. And now five years later, it's wow, we have a fully fledged operation. It's running super well. All of the employees are happy. And I've transferred really the day-to-day leadership to him and to see how that's flourishing is really cool. Really, really, it's really great to, to see that. And it's something that I know the leadership coaches, that's what they talk about, right? Is inspiring that in other people. It's very cool. So before we get into the fun questions, if he's doing all the day-to-day stuff, what do you work on on a consistent basis? I work, there's some business development stuff for that company that I get involved with at the corporate level where we're working with, a lot of our, the day-to-day selling sales on that for that business is with individual hotels, but we have some deals that that he and I work on together at the corporate level. I'm the CFO, if you will. I'm looking in at at the numbers and general sort of if there's any important decision to make about, you know, strategy or are we going to go after this type of client or that type of client, things like that. For Wigwig Group, because it's a, Wigwig Group is a newer company, obviously it's really new. So I'm more involved in doing some of the actual client work. I have some clients that I actually do the, you know, consulting on myself and show up to meet with them a couple of times a month and track the progress of their projects. And then I have also a partner that I brought in for Wiggly Group who has a portfolio of clients that he's running too. That that business, the Wiggly Group business, we'll see how it shakes out over the next five years or so. But I think what we're realizing is that it's it's a, I guess this is a consulting model where we're going to have leaders of a portfolio of kind of a book of business, vice presidents or managing directors or that sort of thing that kind of run their own their own portfolios of business. A little bit of a different structure than, than live music, yeah. Time for fun questions? Let's see. Favorite movie or book? Favorite movie or book? Let's see here. A uh, very important book that I like, which is, a, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say it's a little bit kitschy because it's in the um, sort of psychology, self-help realm, but The Four Agreements. Have you ever heard of The Four Agreements? Yes, I have. I've read it. Juan Miguel. Juan Miguel. Ruiz. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That to me was a big one. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions. What was it? Be impeccable with your word. And I think the last one was try your best or something like that. Try your best so that you don't regret not having put in the proper effort later. Something along those lines. Yeah, very basic. Uh, The be impeccable with your word is something that I 
didn't understand when I was reading it, but now I have a much greater understanding of it. When you say to a client, for example, I'm going to be there at 10 a.m., and then you show up at 10 a.m., and you do that a few times in a row, they trust you because you do what you say you're going to do. Wow. Okay. They don't teach that in high school. They should. How do you get people to trust you? Well, you actually have to say you're going to do something, and then you have to do it on time. Question about trust. Do people have to earn trust with you, or do you give it immediately, and then it can only be taken away? For instance, I trust people initially. All that can happen is that they take it away. So if they say they're going to be there at 10 a.m. and they keep showing up late, the trust erodes. Yeah, yeah. I'm like that, too. I, I would say I, I, I'm not jaded or cynical where I'm just assuming people are going to screw it up. No, I'm assuming, look, here's what we're planning on doing. My assumption is that we're going to do it. And if you don't do it multiple times in a row, then obviously it erodes. But yeah, I, I'm like you. Favorite meal? Favorite meal. There's a little hole-in-the-wall Thai restaurant in Miami called Lung Yai. If anybody listening hasn't been there and they're traveling to Miami or lives in Miami, it's on Calle Ocho, 8th Street, which is like the, like little, it's called Little Havana, the Cuban neighborhood. Oh my God. They have a dish, the, the, I think what the most popular thing there, it's called Cal Soy. Oh man. And Cal Soy, Sometimes you can find at other restaurants, but particularly the cow soy at that place is really special. So maybe you didn't know this, Matt, but I only have two listeners. They're my sisters. So when you say you're going to have your dad listen and Lowell listen, you've doubled my listeners just in this podcast. Hey, so, know. hey, all right. I appreciate it. Going from two <laughs> to four, if I could double every time, I'll be in good shape. Favorite vacation spot? I don't know if I have one favorite because this is so funny. Every time I travel somewhere, and I come back to Miami, I say, hey, I had a great time out there, but I'm happy I'm back. That's how you know you like the, that's how you know you like the place where you live. You're living in a vacation spot. Every time I fly in, I say, oh man, I'm so happy I'm back. That was cool, but it wasn't, wasn't as good as Miami. But, oh, I don't know, favorite vacation spot. My wife and I went to Sedona, Arizona a few years ago, which was amazing. She is Colombian. So I, we, I love going to Colombia. I love going to Mexico. I love Mexico City, which is not typically like you think of a vacation beach or whatever, but I live near a beach. So I like the interest, interesting places. Yeah, I don't know. Any, anything in Mexico, I tend to really like. Small colonial towns. I love the Latin American colonial town. I went to Oaxaca a few years ago, which I thought was amazing. So I don't know. I, I've... See, Matt, I ask you for favorite and you, you reel off like five places. Yeah, exactly. You understand what favorite means, right? Okay. Three-part question. If I gave you a hundred, a thousand, and a hundred thousand dollars, you had to spend it. hundred bucks. What do you, what are you buying? A hundred bucks. No, I don't know. A hundred bucks is a good dinner for four at that Thai place that I told you. Okay. Dinner with wife and a couple friends. It's a Thai place in Little Havana. Yeah, it's just that's just where they chose to put it. But it, it's really you would pass by it and you'd never notice it unless somebody told you. But if you go there on a Friday night, people know it's a line around the block. Those are the gems. That's what you look for. So a thousand dollars, you had to spend it. What are you buying? Oh, some kind of travel, some kind of maybe a cruise or something like that. Oh, especially from Miami, a hundred thousand dollars. Got to spend it. What are you buying? Spend it or invest it? Can't invest it. Come on. Can't invest it. Yeah. This is a, not a fiscally sound podcast. For a CPA, let me think, 100000 to spend it. I, I, it would be some, if I had to spend it and not 
invested in something, it would have to be, it would also have to be some kind of travel, but it could be, it could be something amazing. Like I'm going to take the hundred thousand and we're going to go and choose, I don't know, four or maybe six, let's call it six destinations around the world. We're going to post up two months each in each destination and rent some amazing, if you go, if you do this internationally, my wife and I do this in Bogota a few months ago, we rented a, re- a nice place for not that much money to get a month long rental on an Airbnb or something like that. And I would go and I would pick six destinations all around the world, rent a totally amazing villa or some kind of amazing house and work remotely from each of those places. And if it's a hundred thousand, we look at the budget, see if we can fly business class or something to, to Asia. But I would do it. I don't know where, I, where would I do it? Like maybe Colombia, something in Europe, maybe Portugal or Spain. Then I would do, oh, I don't know what else is it? Maybe Thailand, maybe Philippines. Yeah. Middle East. You see where I'm going? Eastern Europe. Middle East. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been to the Middle East. So something, something interesting over there. Never been to Eastern Europe either. Anyway, so something along those lines. Okay, this is a good question for you. Any musical act, artist or group, dead or alive, who would you want to see? You know, the, the most important pianist for me, who probably a lot of, there's a lot of pianists out there that feel the same way, is Oscar Peterson. And Oscar Peterson passed away recently, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, something like that. And I never saw him perform. And he, I think he had been, he was in his prime a long time ago, 50s, 60s. If I could go back and hear the, the golden age of the Oscar Peterson trio in you know, 1959, wow, that would be the best. That's, that's my other follow-up question. So you'd fly back to 1959 to go see him versus bringing him alive and bringing him to Miami and letting him perform for you in your backyard. Yeah, no, I would go back and I don't know, I would sit in the, you know, what would be the best fly back night. I think it was 1959 approximately and just sit in the recording studio when they made this record called Night Train, which is one of his most famous records. That's what I would do. Your smile has never been bigger than talking about Oscar Peterson on this podcast. Oh man. Yeah, exactly. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I, a musician, I had this idea that I would be like on tour or things like that. And then after talking to people who have been on tour, I realized it's not as glamorous as it's cut <laughs> out to be. So information is power. Okay, some rapid fire questions. Do you have a favorite fast food restaurant? Let's see here. I guess I like, I don't know, I guess I like Chick-fil-A if I had to go fast food. That's a popular response. What kind of what's your favorite type of pizza? Okay, this is a uh, funny answer, but they have there's a place. Down, right across the street from me called Mr. O One Pizza, where they make it's I like fancy smancy kind of pizza. I like where they put the prosciutto and the goat cheese and the I like that kind of stuff. Favorite TV show? Seinfeld. That's the right answer. You have a favorite podcast? Oh, I'll de- decline to answer, you know, because well, I'm on a podcast right now. So hopefully it'll be yours after I <laughs> you know, become an avid li- listener. No, I feel pressure. What is your favorite month of the year? So in the Northeast, like when I was growing up in Maryland, I would say October. That's the right answer. Yes. 
the leaves are changing. You put on a little sweater. You get a little pumpkin spice latte going. Man, that, that's really the best month. You had me until the pumpkin spice latte. What's your go-to alcoholic beverage? Mezcal from okay. Mexico. Uh, cat or dog person? Dog. Allergic to cats. But I did just get a new dog that is, my wife is just overjoyed with that. We got the <laughs> cutest dog you've ever seen. So you're the one that has the cutest dog that, that we've ever seen. What's your favorite holiday? I'm not, I'm not a big holiday person generally, but I don't know. Let's say New Year's. Let's say New Year's. Okay. Bring in the new year. Morning or an evening person? I'm a contradiction because my favorite time of the day is really early in the morning but I have a really hard time waking up at that time. <laughs> so how do you, what gets you out of bed then? If you know how sometimes you just, you wake up early or for whatever reason, or you got to go to the airport, something like that. When I'm awake, I'm drinking my coffee and I and before the sun rises and I watch, cause I can see over here from my apartment and I'm on a high enough floor that I can see over to where the sun rises over Miami beach. Wow. That was so cool. That's the best time of the day. I agree with that. What was your first car? It was a old Acura MDX that had been my dad's car. That's it. Mine was too. How many languages do you speak? I know of two. I speak Spanish really fluently and I speak Portuguese well enough that I could go and hang out with someone, hang out with a Brazilian person, but it's really more like Spanish with, with that sounds funny when I, but I could, I could hang out with a Brazilian person and we could have a good conversation. Let's smash it up. Any broken bones? No. Oh, no. I think I did break a toe once. That's, that was it. Eh, I don't know if that counts. Nothing. You can't put a cast on it. Uh, would you rather be a bird or a fish? Bird. Really? And you live by the beach? Yes. Yeah, fly, that flying and my, migrating thing is pretty cool. Yeah, I guess. Um, do you have a celebrity crush? No, I... Good answer. Can't, you know. I can't answer that. No. <laughs> There's don't married people have something like, Hey, if this person comes and knocks on the door, all bets are off that we're married. Some, there's some, I, I guess I'm not that, I'm not that modern. <laughs> uh, I, maybe some people do that. For being a young man, you're not that modern. Okay. The favorite right. smell of these three, which one of these is your favorite coffee, popcorn, or bacon? Coffee. That's the right answer. Okay. Final question. Dinner with anybody dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, I don't know. How about Ray Dalio? That would be pretty cool. Yeah. No, I read his book. And it could happen. Let's see if I can make it happen. Yeah. He's a, he's an, but he's the radical transparency. I like the way he, he went about it. What I love about, you know, he, this principles thing, his books and his, the articles that he writes, the radical transparency, I think is great. Yeah. And he seems to see, I, now I got, I think I got this from him from reading his articles. He sees everything as it's like a machine with inputs and outputs, which I think is brilliant. It's okay. Don't get frustrated about the way the world is. If I say this and the person on the other side reacts with that, then I should look at myself and say, well, like I was saying before on, on a sales presentation is a good example. I say X, I tend to get a response Y. If I don't like the response Y, then I have to go back and look at the X. You look at your input. And keep doing that, iter iterating until it, it's what I want it to be. And isn't, the way, isn't that the way you made his money? Because he built these models where you input things into it to give you a result. 
that was his whole foundation of the billions that he's made for himself. Yeah, very impressive. Matt, very fun conversation. Really appreciate your time and energy and effort on this. So thank you very much. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Gary.